Hello and welcome to At The Source. I'm Alex and this is Karis. This is a podcast about food stories. We love talking about food and eating it. So we wanted to talk to fellow food lovers and record their stories. We're having conversations with everyone from home cooks to food producers and restaurateurs. So why not join us as we explore food in all its glory? Welcome to At The Source. Today's guest is Liz Knight, a forager and edible product developer based in Monmouth, Wales. Oh, God. So there's me going, yeah, it's all fine. I'm just in Herefordshire. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Okay. So basically, so so just in Herefordshire, literally, so everywhere that you look is, so I think that I'm based in Wales. So you're based in Wales, but you live in Hereford. I I do lots of foraging in Wales. And we literally, everywhere around us, where there's a really weird little kind of cutout that kind of goes into Hereford. I like that. That's quite funny, So actually. it's literally so on the borders. Of course, because when we drove here, your postcode was H- HR. 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 Yeah. yeah. So you don't have... No one... So it's a funny thing around here. No one knows whether they're Welsh or they're English. So my kids were born in Abergavenny. They're kind of... One of them is really proud to be Welsh. They belong to the hill. They belong to here. And we don't really know where here is, because it's just... You know, there's yeah, no real so, association. So do we just say Wales? Well, no, just it's on the borders between... I, think I would should... say on the borders between how, between England and Wales, because it literally is right on the border. Right. That's the off-the-strike path on the hill over there. So it's the divide, division between... <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. I have not realised no, where I live. Yeah, 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 I live there. So, Liz is a forager and edible product developer in Hereford on the edge of Wales. We first met her at Abergavenny Food Festival and uh, we were completely fascinated by her products and spent an embarrassing amount of time firing questions at her and the whole time there were kind of crowds of people trying to buy stuff behind us and we were just there acting like fangirls. <laughs> so it was only a matter of time really before we harangued Liz into joining us for a chat. So welcome Liz, thank you for having well, us. That's a pleasure, you didn't have to harangue me very much at all. I always like speaking <laughs> a lot about what I do. This is Bertie as well. This he, is Bertie. He, May or may not make a noise, but um, he is an absolutely gorgeous dog who's joined us. Oh, he's holding your hand. He's holding my hand. Well, I'm kind of holding him down. I'm <laughs> <laughs> licking you. <laughs> so the first question, and we ask everyone this, what is your first memory of food? God, you know, my childhood absolutely... I mean, people sound really pretentious when they... I always feel that like I sound pretentious when I say, oh, you know, I have always memories of food as a child. But actually, I was really greedy. I was utterly driven by food. You know, my first memories, clear. one of my clearest first memories is when I was very young and just joined, I think it wasn't the brownies, it was something before that, but I was very little and I had a really bad tantrum one day and there was a party going on. And my <laughs> older sister went to this party that was for the brownies. I think they had to do some kind of parade and I didn't want to do it. But when she came back, she told me about all the food that they'd eaten and I cried myself to sleep. And oh. for literally, probably years, I can honestly say for years later, I regretted bitterly the decision to not walk in this parade so I didn't go to the party because I can still remember that they had volivants and that they had prawn cocktail crisps. I mean, that wasn't really classy food. It was kind of like, you know, the dross, but I do love a bit of party food. Bowls of crisps. Bowls of crisps. And I missed that and I was so devastated. Yeah, so I've always been very driven by food and very greedy with it. I feel like that. That's my childhood as well. Like, yeah. I'd, I'd chuck a tandy and not go and then just be yeah, so, upset so upset that I didn't go yeah. because I've missed out on the party pies yes. or whatever the case may be. Yeah. 
does any of that link into foraging or is that sort of a separate thing? How did you... What, the, the lack of, lack of uh, plum cocktail crisps? <laughs> well, no, no, I, I, love, <laughs> I was thinking specifically the love of food, but... but yeah. Paris, you know that there are prawn cocktail crisp bushes just outside this <laughs> <Yeah>. house. This <laughs> is why Nobody... we lived in the area we do. <laughs> no one told species. me. You guys are keeping this a secret from well, the Well, do you know the what? There is, a, there is actually a thing between foragers. So lots of people think that, well, you know, maybe foraging can be seen as a bit worthy and it is a little bit, and can be a bit nitty wellies but the majority of foragers who who i hang out with actually are kind of driven by the flavor rather than necessarily it being it's impossible to kind of avoid the fact that wild food's amazingly good for you and it's incredibly sustainable and all of those great messages also the flavors are incredible but it doesn't mean that foraging is difficult or it doesn't mean that foraging is something that people are exclusive to people who have got a very refined palate or whatever and there is a general rule of thumb that a forager's favourite crisps are Monster Munch, um, pickled onion Monster Munch is absolutely kind of, if you're a forager, that's going to be the crisps you love. They are so brilliant. They are brilliant. Mm. They are brilliant. So it doesn't mean, you know, I think that people have this sort of, we have this sort of view that we have, we look up at everybody else, especially in the whole social media kind of world, which is why I try to be a little bit more honest in my feeds of, you know, maybe kind of in the background having my kids screaming at each other. But, you know, it's about balance. And I would love to say that everything I do is based around wild i would love to say that all of my food is clean all of it but you know i still love a packet of monster munch crisps and four cocktail ones the ones that dissolve on your mouth because food should be joyous food should be stuff that makes you just get so excited and so happy just like i would have been on that night that i went, <laughs> didn't go to that party so when did you first start foraging well i think i probably i mean as a kid you know you do just because people pick blackberries and so when i when i teach foraging courses i people will be like oh god i only just pick blackberries and say well actually that's great that's fine that is but foraging. I also, yeah, it's foraging but also what i did used to do and i think most kids used to do is chew grass did you grow up chewing grass people of my i think that it kind of went a little bit people sort of became a bit scared a little who are a little bit younger than me you know this whole fear of food being sanitized or whatever or what you but we'll just go around chewing on a bit of wheat or some grass and there is an incredible flavor anybody who listens to this who used to chew on and anybody probably who's you know in their 40s probably did will know the flavor it's unbelievably green and it's just delicious and chewing on fresh wheat or fresh grass is incredible and you just would do that instinctively so i think that maybe i was the last generation of that leftover instinctive kind of playful you know does that make sense perhaps it's to do with the fact that kids played out more i mean obviously Paris, like yeah. things might have been different in australia but even my generation so i'm early 30s i know <laughs> and we played out a lot yeah. but then my brother who's six years younger than yeah. me i feel like even in that short space of time he didn't play out as much yeah, yeah. and i think maybe it's to do with just the fact that kids aren't outside as much on no. their own no maybe that they don't think to chew on a piece of yeah and it's, pick a black what is really really interesting is that when you do stuff with families and when you do foraging with kids and they can often be foraging you can often take kids foraging with their parents and the parents are kind of like well they're really fussy they don't eat their vegetables they will not do this and they are blown away by the fact that as soon as you say you can eat this from the wild kids immediately will if you put it on their plate as a vegetable that came from the shops they'd be like no way i don't mm. want to eat that but there is a it's a, like it's almost like an incredible um, at a base level of our DNA a difference between what's wild and that instinct to eat it. Does that make sense compared mm. to normal food, conventional food? And that's what makes it amazing and I think exciting and really engaging for kids, but also for adults to regain that playfulness, to regain that ability to be able to kind of 
create and play and try different flavours, stick two different things in your mouth at the same time and mm. to go against, you know, I've got loads of recipe books, but I don't, they, they're quite restrictive. We've become very afraid of not cooking something unless you've got absolutely the right ingredients that are there for you. The best recipe books are the ones which say take a chicken, put it in the oven, you know, and mm. everyone's ovens with different temperatures. Everybody's got different taste buds. Everyone likes different, you know, and we all have forgotten, I think, culturally we've forgotten that. And I think that a really great thing about Wild is it, reconnects you back to that and historically i know that a lot of cookbooks really were they weren't so much a here's how you do this this and this it was more of a reminder of yeah these are the ingredients it doesn't tell you how much this is you know you put it in the oven it doesn't tell you for how long no. you know it just tells you how to cook it it was more of a yeah. reminder because yeah. i think there was a time when people really were cooking a lot more and they yeah. didn't they didn't necessarily need a recipe book and i mean my best meals have come out and i'm sure alex will agree and you will probably have the same thing my best meals have come out from me rummaging through the fridge and going yeah. what what have i got yeah. in here and oh yeah i forgot i had that thing in the cupboard yeah. i'll use that but i think that you have to have a certain i really really do think you have to have a certain amount of confidence to be able to do that yeah. And I've, I know loads of people, lots of friends who had kind of, when I was in my teens, early 20s and started cooking, friends would be like, well, there's no way I can't do that. I can't live the lack of confidence. And that's not about unconfident people. It's about how we are told. And as much as I love cooking programs and celebrity chefs being on TV and cooking more, I don't think it encourages people to cook more because I think it, there's a certain amount of, I don't think it's their ego, but I think there's a certain amount of making it more exclusive, more hard. It, it's, easy, it's, it's, it's good to make things look harder because it makes you look like you're clever. And actually, what I'm about is going, oh, it's really, really easy. Anybody can do this. When I launched Forage, part of the reason why I did it was try to get people to kind of re-engage with all of these flavours which were around. So making products which kind of screamed of good flavour. But actually, at the time, you didn't need to have such um, extensive labelling of spices, what spices you had and things. Mm. And I, from the very beginning wouldn't keep recipes secret if someone said that's delicious I'd be like yeah you can go off and make it yourself mm. so people buy a rose petal preserve from me and then if, I, if they say they've got a rose bush in their garden I'd be like well you should be doing this for yourself and this is how and it's a little bit of an odd way to do business but for me it works you know it people kind of... pay for convenience don't they yeah they so do if they can pay a few few pounds just they do, so that but you're equally, doing it yeah they do but equally it, there might be a time when they suddenly go actually you know I'm going to do that and you know it's really really great to see people kind of going and doing stuff themselves. It's really lovely to be that catalyst yeah. to an extent, you know. And with your products as well. So I bought a couple of them at mm. um, Abergavenny. Thank you very much for doing that. Oh, the... I so paid the, for some children's lunches and some crisps. <laughs> crisps, you see. Um, so the one that I've really loved, and I, I did it on some fish a few weeks ago, was the elderflower and fennel rub with rock salt and actually going back to your point about you share the recipes or you you're a catalyst for people to want to do it themselves the fact that it is wild and foraged and very simple interesting pairings there's nothing in there that is complicated no, so not. i could read that the back the back you of that jar and say all oh, right so i need this elderflower i need this fennel seeds yeah. i need this rock salt and I love that, and yeah. I also love. Um, we're, we're kind of jumping around a bit here, but I think it's fine. When we when we met you at Avogaveni, you were showing us some of the really historic combinations that you've got. And yeah. for example, the the Pontac yeah. was really interesting, and we tried a bit, didn't we? And the, these kind of historic recipes, which just lend themselves so beautifully to these ingredients that have yeah. been part of our yeah. countryside forever. Yeah, and we have this. We've we've got this very. We're very down on our food culture and our food heritage in Britain and actually we have got the most incredible flavours you know part of the reason I've got the most 
Sorry, that's the dog pounding up and down. I'm going to give him tapping a, my fingers. I'm going to give him a cuddle. A cuddle, make him stop. Hello. Um, yeah, part of the reason why we have these amazing, you know, flavours is because we're an island and we lost huge amounts of our indigenous planting in the last ice age, and so we've built black up flora and fauna and animals through it being invaded through immigration and I think it's a really pertinent kind of thing that we are the country that we are multiculturally and within our plant life and our anim- wider animal life because of this and that's it's a celebratory thing but we have flavours from all around the world that are indigenous not to the UK they've become indigenous you know, mm. native species over hundreds of years mm, Romans bring things in well yeah a huge amount huge amount you know my garden's full of ground elder which just tastes amazing people hate it but it was introduced by the Romans as a food as, as the Roman roads were built the Roman soldiers would go and they would kind of throw bits of seed of ground elder seed to grow it so they had a food stuff when they came back you know it's nutritious it's amazing flavoured stuff and yeah, we don't. We then watch programs and go on a holiday and see people in Greece or in France sort of foraging for dandelions by the side of the road, thinking how amazing it is. They must have this incredible stuff. And actually, it's the same. It's the same yeah. stuff. Yeah, we just don't think we've got it in the UK. Oh, Bertie, he's desperate for cuddles, bless him. Oh, he's been uh, he's been banished to behind the gate. Oh, come over, Bertie. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're not helping because we're encouraging him with, with extra cuddles. Uh, I, I wanted to know what was the catalyst for taking a hobby of foraging into a, a business that you yeah. now do, and that includes not just making the products but also doing the courses. Yeah. Um, well, I worked in for years, at well, a number of years, in the corporate sector, you know, kind of in offices with no natural daylight and wearing stripy suits I just always felt like a fraud like to the point that I thought no one else feels like a fraud like like me you know I'm kind of I'm sure lots of people do good old imposter syndrome imposter mm. syndrome but I really did because it wasn't me at all um and I used to live in Cardiff and um, I'd walk through Butte Park on my way to work in the mornings I'd kind of have like sticky berries in my bags and kind of didn't quite know where they'd come from but it was obviously this instinctive thing to just be picking more interested in that than I was in and um, you know, signing corporate accounts and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, so I, yeah, and and then I got made redundant. We'd moved to just outside Monmouth, into um, the middle of the countryside. And because I'd always lived in towns and cities, I didn't drive. I didn't need to drive. Um, and I worked from home for um, an IT company. I mean, doing kind of what I would regard, and that kind of at the time I knew was kind of the worst job in the world. I was an IT headhunter at this point, which is kind of like lower than a state agent, even lower than politician maybe um but it was really really <laughs> uh, and you know kind of uh, unfortunately it was good at it because I kind of liked meeting people and then we kind of would get good relationships and so it, it was very difficult to break away and that was one of those things it's very difficult to break away from the roles you end up in in life mm, I didn't want to do these jobs I did not want to do them whatsoever but I left university and did some te- you know was in the age of manpower temping temp to ICL fell into IT and then you you become reliant on your salary, you become reliant on that thing, and it's absolutely part of that whole kind of rat race of like, how on earth did I come here? And I was so lucky because I was only doing those kind of jobs, which were, lots of people are really great, but for me it was not the right yeah. thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, when, and I was doing, I'd been doing them for a few, sort of only four or five years, it felt like a lot longer, when the year 2000 kind of crash happened and didn't recover, and so the company that I worked for um, kind of, folded and I had to was unemployed for the first time in my life and 
in Monmouth there was a day centre and I've always loved art, I always loved baking and making stuff and creating stuff and I had nothing to do with my time for the first time so I spent the summer gardening and foraging and volunteering at a day centre with all of these amazing, amazing men and women who grew up in Monmouthshire, um, who lived through First World War, Second World War, you know, the whole rationing kind of things who'd come through real hardship and I was there to teach them what to do. I was there to teach them how to make bread. I was there to teach them how to make cakes and how to paint. And these people had been painting for like 60 years, baking for their whole life. And then one day I realised they were so kind to me and they had that patronising, yes, look, I was in my 20s, you know, I now look like, just, it was shocking really. And so I said, well, how would you do it? And of course they all just took over and showed me how to make a soda bread. Such a good way to learn. Though, well, I it? kind of, yeah, it revolutionised my yeah. life. It was amazing. And I kind of suddenly felt like, this is right, you know. And so um, I ran a few projects in the day services and across Monmouthshire, bringing children together with older people, um, intergenerational work, which kind of, they got together. And a lot of it was based around food. So a lot of it was based around food, heritage and sharing and stuff. Because reason of them being there they were kind of towards the end of their lives so people would die you know and like there mm. were people who had amazing food stories and amazing food knowledge who died there was a guy called Jim who was from Scotland little tiny tiny slight man and he um had work he came down to Wales to work on chicken farms and he would never eat chicken he was refused to eat chicken and one day he told me the reason why he wouldn't eat chicken is because he'd worked on chicken farms for 40 years he had seen the difference in the lifespan of a chicken from when he first started working in them to the end. Mm. And he was convinced, obviously and rightly so, that it was wrong. That the direction that the, the direction that the food was going in, in and yeah. he wasn't comfortable. Yeah, and it was, and then he died, you know, and that story went. So, um, yeah, I kind of became very passionate at this point about remembering and resurging kind of connections to food, about kind of passing on stories about kind of keeping our food heritage alive and and it somehow led to this I don't quite know how it did I can remember thinking we're all so busy you know when I was less busy when I'd left the corporate world and I was I had no money for the first time I was earning far too much money when I was working within the corporate sector suddenly had no money but I was so happy Mm. and I'd have friends I love cooking so I'd have friends come around for supper and I'd cook a pie with elderberries in or make a tartan with rose hips on it or you know make nettle soup and I could people couldn't believe you could eat the stuff yeah because it was very new that not wasn't new it was really old you know but it had lost currency at all yeah um and then you know I kind of had a moment of thinking why do we not have nettle soup in the supermarkets this should be this is the stuff we should be eating and I kind of so the germ of an idea happened years ago and it took as all good ideas do to me to have a daughter, my middle daughter Eloisa had bronchitis and was very ill when she was younger so I was utterly sleep deprived and she was a few months old, with, I had a toddler and this very, at the time, ill child and I was at a playgroup and I met this mum who had worked um, in Harrods as a food bar, as a buyer and she'd worked with Neil's Yard, the oil people, um, helping with her procurement and I was telling her about this, this pie in the sky idea I had for running a food business that bought back all these sort of, you know, products. And she was like, that's an amazing idea. And why are you not doing it? Well, I can't. And for six months, she came and she helped me That's fantastic. Plan. And yeah, yeah, so it's amazing. And at the time, my products were really expensive. They were not cheap things. And I had to take a real... I would have naturally have made them cheap because I would have naturally have said, but you don't need to charge for my time. 
doesn't matter, you know, that mm. doesn't matter. And you couldn't have grown. And it wasn't, if you could Nicola Hazel, she's like my heroine. If it wasn't for her spending time with me and growing it and working out how do you, how do you kind of price a product to make it sustainable yeah. and how are you brave to be able to kind of, and where do you want it to be? But one of the most important things that she did that I would recommend any food business doing or any business is work out what are your values and we worked out what are the core values of my business. My mm-hmm. core values were things like sustainability. They were about kind of flavour over over kind of growth, if that makes sense. And all these different th- you know, things yeah. which were really, really important. And we had, I had them written up. I don't have them written up anymore, but they're just scored they're into my heart. Of, they're part yeah. of it, yeah. And I think if you go into a business with that, one of my brand values that I'm not going to lose, it really gives you direction. The direction it gave me is not to grow, <laughs> particularly. Yeah. But that's, I feel really comfortable with that. But also, actually, the stuff that you're doing, I think if it ended up being on a mass scale, it would lose everything that it's about. Yeah, you know, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, I, there's, there's stuff that, yeah, my range of things I pick up, I've got to not, uh, just by who, what they are, change seasonally. They're, some seasons are really great for some things and not for others. And so I can only work with shops. And I have some amazing stockists who are so supportive of the fact that one year might they might have something that sells out and it's not available the next year. And then it year. can't come back again. No, the, I, the I quinces could, have run out. Yeah, or, I could yeah. sell pickled wild garlic buds, thousands and thousands of jars of them. But every year, suddenly, you know, something will happen where the flowers all open and you can't make them anymore. And then this year, everything was so late and there were buds, just you know, acres and acres of buds. You could have made so much of them because of the late, the late. Um, spring but then suddenly there was that hot weekend and when I went a day later everything had been closed and the day later after I went all the buds were open and I've never seen a sea of white like it where everything opened in just one weekend and so that whole thing was just over you couldn't do it so I only made a small amount this year and but yeah I mean I have there's I have plans to make a product which is really influenced by it's almost like a botanical like a vinegar version of a gin it kind of sounds a bit odd but it, it's a, for a product that I can make on a larger scale that's wild harvested but not by me but it's all developed by me so that there is a product that could go mm-hmm. more mainstream partly because it means that there would be employment opportunities and it could grow as a business because I think it's really important as small businesses as well to grow to an extent where you can employ people around here. We're too far from, as you noticed, coming here um, <laughs> from towns to be able to. Especially if you're a parent who's got children at school, mm. you're unreliable. Uh, I'm utterly unreliable in that because you've got kids who suddenly get ill. Mm. You know, you get all the bugs thrown at you. Something yep. happens. You've got the holiday issues. You've got very short work days, and so when I employ people, I employ parents, mums, kids who do picking for pocket money. But it would be really great to be able to actually to build a business on a product that can go out there, that is you know using a very flexible workforce the ultimate cottage industry really tell us a bit more about sorry i totally talked over there no i was gonna say i think alex wanted to ask you about picking for pocket money so i read about the picking for pocket money on your website and i just love the sound (laughs) so can you tell our listeners a little bit more about about that i mean i'd love to i'd love to say it's huge some years it's bigger than others um it's very simple really um children have little nimble fingers I think so it's a really simple thing I can't pick as much of stuff as I need so kids are motivated by earning pocket money um children historic you know kind of people our grandparents or some people's parents would have picked rose hips for pocket money and things and so where I grew up in in Hertfordshire I grew up in North Hertfordshire there's a place called William Ransom's and they made something with elderflower and 
in Hitchin in Hertfordshire, there's anybody listening from there, they will remember kids running across the tops of roofs to pick elderflowers from the banks of council houses on the, in, on the council estate. <laughs> Amazing. Because, and they did, you know, it's been going on for a very long time. But, um, so I work with, um, I put a newsletter out at the local school when I need certain things. So a few weeks ago, I just said, we need elderberries this weekend. And the kids come, come in and they come in with bags of elderberries on the Monday morning. And they get a pound a kilo, which doesn't sound a lot, but it takes minutes to pick a kilo of elderberries when they're in season. So at the moment, they're going to be picking rose hips. And it's not just about the picking, because I could employ people to pick, but it's about family and getting, because they often have to go out with their parents. So it's about that time of being out. It's also about doing, I think children nowadays have so much stuff thrown at them that they are doing the value of money. Understanding the value of money. Yeah, but also the value of just being out in the countryside and learning mm. stuff. It's impossible to be told, go and pick some sloth um, berries without then having to identify what a blackthorn bush is compared to a different bush. And just the loveliest things have been days... It's, it, it's lovely when the kids come with a tray of, of berries for me and it's great that they've picked and they've been out. But one of the loveliest things was when a little boy called Sam told me the directions to the best blackthorn tree that he could find and that he wanted me to be able to go and see it and he had this connection to it because he had he was so proud and he'd gone out and found he'd been out there for hours picking you know he earned an awful lot of money but it's a really really it's just for me it's about that way of engaging children and keeping these old you know parts of our food heritage well yeah and also with nature you only value something that's got a value and that's unfortunate you know in a way we should just value stuff because it's i i value value things because I'm out it the whole time I even value wasps because they have a really important role and I think once you start seeing what is out there and the important things you know I before I started foraging I would honestly have looked at probably my garden and been like that's shockingly messy I'd like it nice and neat and you know and actually now I would never look at a verge that's unkempt or whatever as being a mess it's just full of food it's full of nutrition it's full of flavor you know and, and there's a value to everything and I think it makes you see the world in a different way so hopefully it makes the, those kids see the world in a way that's you know kind of a bit nicer and they can go and buy their crisps their monster munch crisps with their pocket yeah. see it always it's comes, a back comes to crisps. <laughs> so when you say somebody wants to start foraging yeah um because you can buy books you can yeah. use plenty of websites what what are some things that people can can do to easily get into foraging? So I would always say getting into foraging is like starting to collect records. When I was at university, pretty much all my student grant went on um, the record exchanges in <laughs> London. I was an avid record collector. I loved like jazz and funk and soul. And when I first started collecting records, I my mum had lived in lodgings with a jazz musician called um, Jerry Mulligan. Who, so I knew about him. I knew about Charlie Mingus. I knew about these different people. And so I'd go and buy their records and I'd listen to them, and then you would kind of see from the back of their record who else played in their band. And this is going to sound a convoluted way of foraging, but it's, there's a story to it, believe me. <laughs> so you just kind of start to learn. I like that. I like that kind of genre of music, you know, and then you listen to something that someone else, and you start. So you grow your knowledge, and now I have hundreds and hundreds of records in the living room. Um, so you grow your knowledge based upon what you like, but you start off small to begin with. And I think that's how you approach foraging. It's the safest, it's the most fun way. So when I first started foraging, I would forage blackberries and elderberries and damsons and really simple things. And then I'd kind of be like, oh, but this plant also looks like that. And I'd go and identify it. So ID is really good for growing your knowledge. Mm. But I would start off 
really, really would. Nettles, for example, start off with things you really 100% know. You if need you, to know what you it need is. to know what it is. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. you don't munch on a hunch. It's a kind of a phrase that you know. Munch on a hunch. Yeah, those those monster munching foragers use, <laughs> but you don't. Um, you really have got to be 100% sure about what you're picking. But we are 100% sure about lots of plants. Mm-hmm. We just sort of forget that you know. So people know what dock leaves look like. Docks are a fantastic wild food. Nettles are. For me, the perfect place to start because if you don't know how to identify a nettle, you probably, well, you know, you've never uh, been outside. You've never been outside, which <laughs> yeah. is scary actually, because yeah. some people have never been stung by a nettle, and you know, I feel like I should be exempt from this. <laughs> <laughs> nettle, nettle stings are what kind of British childhood is about, yeah. And then dock leaves, picking a dock leaf picking to a dock, rub to on rub your nettle yeah. sting, yeah. Yeah. yeah, which everyone thinks is. Does it actually do something? Not as much as a nettle juice itself. You see, oh. there's lots of things. So you start to, but you know, yep. so nettle is a great plant. So nettle is a plant that you can go, great, so I can make, I'll find, historic, we would have gone, before the internet really came, you know, social media came about, you'd have gone, okay, I can make some nettle soup. That's nice, and now I'm a bit bored of it, and you move on to the next thing, and you forget about foraging nettles ever again. But actually, because of social media and Google and stuff, if you Google nettle on Instagram um, look on Instagram for Google nettle recipes, you will find the most incredible array of things you can do with nettle. So you can take nettle in a savoury direction, you can ferment it, you can make it really Ooh. sweet, you can turn it into crisps, you can make it into salts, you can you can put it into cakes. Nettle cake is one of the most astronomically delicious things. You can gather nettle through the year. You know, it's there's a it's just it's magic. You know, at the, the moment it's got a second flush of life. Nettles so you gather in the in the autumn and in the spring. It's um, just so good for you. It's hugely better for you than any conventional shop bought greens, basically. You and know. you can forage all year round then. By the pretty of it. much. I mean, there's a time so you don't want to gather nettle when it's too long because it's such a strong plant at pulling up anything. So when it becomes taller and bigger, it's unbelievably powerful at pulling stuff from the ground but equally if you eat it it'll pull little bits of calcium and, and deposits from your blood so it, you only really yeah, I mean you wow. want to eat the young the young shoots the young tips but if you strim patches of nettles then you've got supply all year round um but yeah you know kind of if, look to how people preserve stuff nowadays look how the supermarkets sell stuff so spinach is bought fresh wilts really quickly but you can then buy really good frozen spinach in those sort of yeah. handfuls and you do the same thing with nettles so i'll be going out picking the nettle from my garden that looks all overgrown but it's overgrown for a reason because mm-hmm. i'll be picking all the nettles and then steaming them down squishing them into little bullets which are like our spinach supply for the winter fantastic um, but yeah. i always buy those bags of spinach yes well don't we all and, <laughs> and all that's in them is loads of water because it's just full of water whereas nettle wild food the great thing about it is basically everything that you eat has originated from the wild. Mm. All plants have originated, all animals have originated from the wild, but we've just changed the makeup of them over the years. And every time you do something going, that needs to be a bit sweeter, we don't want that bitterness, mm. you're losing other benefits of the plant. Mm. So, you know, kind of the way that we farm greens is with kind of intensively, we sterilise the ground to begin with so that no weeds grow on it. So there's hardly any nutritional value mm. to food anymore but all the wild stuff is pushed to the verges pushed to the margins absolutely has got these incredibly long roots big root systems are pulling up massive amounts of nutrients from the ground and they're just kind of abundantly there wanting to grow only they grow where they want to grow if you look in the field, the field outside the front it's heavily grazed but there's patches of nettles and they only grow in certain patches and that's been where there's been dung heaps because, because there's nitrogen something rich. Nutri- yeah, nutritious highly in the soil. nitrogen rich so it'll only grow it wants to grow 
Wow. I oh, I kind of feel like our so eyes lovely. are bigger than, bigger than our bellies at this point. <laughs> because, um, for a podcast that's supposed to go for like 25, 30 minutes, I feel like we could be here for an hour. Um, but Liz has a delivery to do this afternoon, right? I do. So we, we probably will wrap up there because it's been fascinating and I feel like I've got a million more questions and I may ask them after we stop recording. But thank you so much for welcoming us That's into your pleasure. beautiful home. Thank you. I don't think that I will look at the hedgerows and the, the kind of verges in the same way again. I'm going to be You're thinking, going to be scanning the form cocktail first. I am. in those hedgerows. <laughs> we will have some show notes that will link people back to Forage Fine Foods website um, and your Twitter and Instagram. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast, please rate it five stars on iTunes and subscribe either there or on SoundCloud. And until next time, over and out. <laughs>